the Psych and P podcast, where we talk all about the life and work of being a psychiatric nurse practitioner in various settings and types of practices. I'm your host, Matt Schroer, rhymes with flamethrower. I desperately wish today's episode was brought to you by Stephen King, but it is brought to you by an adorable snoring Boston Terrier. Charlene Donovan, it is wonderful to see you. I guess the last time that we saw each other was virtually, and it was for the Tennessee Nurses Association local Middle Tennessee chapter that we spoke at together. But I, I the time before that, I think, was March Madness Week 2019 when we met someone for uh, dinner at Bar Taco in Nashville. I think that that's the last time we saw each other in person. Your, your memory is freakishly spot on. I think you're absolutely accurate. Yeah. Kudos. You can track all that through the, through the pandemic and everything else that's entered your brain since then. Well, I, if, I've, if I've remembered one thing, it's people that I care about. So, yeah, and I think I forgot everything else along the way. But, yes, it's so great <laughs> to see you and so great to talk to you. We have been just BSing for a, a, a long time before we actually hit record, but I'm sure we still have tons of, of really good things to, to talk about today. So, welcome. I told you a little bit about this, but decided that I thought a podcast about people who work in different environments and different settings was a really cool thing for students to hear about different ways in which they can enter practice, but just the various environments, but also roles that people can have. And you, and your role in particular is pretty unique. And I think a lot of people are like, I guess I, I become a nurse practitioner and then I just do patient care and that's what I do forever. And then I retire and get the gold watch and then sail off into the sunset kind of thing but that's not true there's so much variety and so much opportunity to do a lot of different things and you are kind of the poster child of all of that so tell everybody a little bit about yourself your background how you got into nursing i mean you have a long long history in mental health and a long career in mental health and corrections and that sort of thing but tell everybody how you got to what is today we're recording on April 14th. So April 14th, how did you get to April 14th today talking with, with me here? Well, I, well, I'm thrilled to be here chatting with you. We always have a good time when we, uh, when we catch up, but, um, yeah, I have had what I consider to be one of the luckiest careers on the planet. I am, I started off, I am actually a clinical psychologist. My first degree was from the university of Memphis clinical program in clinical psychology and i don't want to give away my age but i'm pretty old <laughs> you, you, you're so accomplished for 27 it's unbelievable i know but uh, no so i my, my undergraduate degree is in psychology and i knew that i wanted to be a psychologist of some sort way back when and in my last semester of my senior year, I went to a small um, Jesuit college in Kansas City called Rockers. I was deciding I'd been accepted into two different doctoral programs in psychology. One was clinical psychology at the University of Memphis, and the other one was an experimental psychology program at Ohio State University, where I would have been working with non-human primates on language acquisition. <laughs> and for both of those incredibly divergent pathways. And I was meeting with my um, advisor, trying to decide what did my life need to look like and what did I want to do? And he, in a, a moment of 
great wisdom said, Charlene, you don't have to decide now what you're going to do for the whole rest of your life. And that was this incredibly freeing comment that just had always lived in my brain. But that's fast forward to the story. But I opted for the clinical route. I went to the University um, uh, of Memphis, like I said, got my doctorate, and did my uh, psychologist. You have to do a year of pre-doctoral internship, and then you do a year of post-doctoral supervision. In my pre-doctoral year, I was at the Kansas City VA, Veterans Administration Hospital, and I was interning with three other psychologists, one of whom was married to the health director in the Kansas Department of Corrections, and we got to know each other, and as my internship year was wrapping up, he said, Charlene, if you'll come work with me for a year in the DOC as a psychologist, I will be your supervisor for your last year of required supervision, and I'll do that for free. So free sounded pretty good, and I had never really thought about working in corrections, but I thought, what the heck? And so off I went to the largest men's prison in Kansas, and from day one, knew I was at home. Loved it. The clanging doors didn't bother me. I loved the population. I um, uh, have always been drawn to the underdog in any battle or fight and it's pretty hard to find a bigger underdog than an incarcerated person unfortunately in america these days and so i i did that um and never left corrections i i went for a year and as of april 14 2022 i'm still working with guys behind the walls and loving every minute I, i i am pleased to say When I said I was lucky, I've been incredibly lucky. I have never had a dull or boring day in my entire career, and not a lot of people are able to say that. Fast forward, that little voice from my undergrad who said, you don't have to decide today what you want to do for the rest of your life. I began thinking about what do I want to do as a mid-career change? I had done a lot of things in corrections. I've been a site psychologist. I had been a clinical supervisor of a large team in corrections. I then became the state mental health director in Kansas when my mentor, and that grew into a larger role. I became a national behavioral director for a really large correctional healthcare company. And I did that for many years, traveled nationally, had incredible opportunities in the business development world and in the clinical world and in the leadership world. But I always had that in the back of my head. You can choose to do something else. That path is always open for you. So I started thinking about what is my mid-career going to look like? What am I going to do next? And so I approached a couple of folks who I really respected and asked them to be my life coaches and spent a couple of years thinking about what did I love about my job? What did I not love about my job? How did I want to grow as a professional? And so I ended up with three options. I thought I'm going to go out, go back and get a doctorate in history in the history of psychology. And then I realized there was probably one job in the United States that opened up for that at any on any given year. And I thought about an attorney and representing individuals diagnosed with serious and persistent mental illness because I had seen so many examples of um, people coming into the correctional system who didn't need to be there. 
and I really questioned of their legal care and that there really should have been a pathway of diversion for a lot of people who end up in corrections. Sure. Um, and then I thought, I thought about becoming a nurse practitioner and focusing on psychiatry because over time I looked around at what psychiatrists did because when I started in corrections, we didn't have psychiatric MPs, we had psychiatrists. And I thought about what patients experienced in you saw one person for your medications and you saw one person for your therapy. And it's really difficult when you really dig into the corrections patient population or the justice involved population, I like to call them. There's a huge amount of trauma, huge amount of trauma. Sure. That these, and it doesn't excuse their behavior. It doesn't excuse the, the criminal behavior by any means, but I thought how intriguing it might be to be able to offer a patient therapy and meds all in one and that they didn't have to retell that story multiple times, whatever that trauma might be for them. And my life coaches and I decided that NP school was the way to go. So that's how I ended up. I continue to be licensed as a psychologist in many states. And I am also now an NP in many states. I left that position as the national um, uh, mental health director for the company I worked for to go to Vanderbilt. And I had not planned on coming back, but my graduation came around and I got a call from the company that said, would you think about coming back? And I said, not in my old role. I want to do something else. And so I've been back there now for five years. And I had this really interesting gig. For a few years, I worked doing program development and patient care. So I developed therapy and intervention programs for the company nationally for our staff to use. I did a lot of work on national zero suicide and suicide risk reduction program because folks who are justice involved are at terribly high risk of suicide compared to folks who are not justice involved. And just recently, I transitioned again within the company, and I focus on our national nurse practitioner program, developing training and education and support structures for new NPs who are interested in the justice-involved population who join WellPath so that we can support them as they get their feet under them as a provider, but as they also get their feet under them in a correctional setting, which is a whole other host of challenges. For sure. For sure. And you still do patient care. And I still do patient care. When I left Vanderbilt, I said to myself, you're an incredibly seasoned psychologist, but you're a brand new prescriber. So where do you put yourself where you can learn and become more developed in your expertise in this area in a place that's safe for you and safe for your patients. And so I went over to Davidson County Jail and I worked for the mental health co-op part-time. And I did that for about a year and a half. And I now do um, teleservices into one of our state correctional facilities. I cover a work for guys who are incarcerated, but they are eligible to go out and work in the community. And one of the reasons I made that switch was this particular Department of Corrections had rolled out an MAT treatment program to address just the terrible outcomes that we see all across the country. When folks who have untreated opioid use disorders leave corrections, their rates of death by overdose in the first month 
after release is astronomically high and incredibly forward thinking. And I was able and continue to part of my um, coverage is I run the MAT program for the guys who are at the work camp in addition to doing, if you would call it general psychiatric care. Okay, nice. And you do that how many days a week? I do that one day a week. Okay. So I work three days a week uh, just on the kind of NPP or the APP program and my kind of program development administrator hat. And then one day a week I throw on the clinician hat. Okay. And you are, so what's interesting is you're living in Arizona currently, but you're practicing in Maine. So how do... <laughs> Just this is the probably the dumbest question I could ask all night. But the time change does that ever completely screw you up? <laughs> as far as like the what is it a four hour three hour difference four hour difference what is it? Yeah, right now it's three hours because Arizona we don't change. We, Arizona expects the world to revolve around us. Yes, Our okay. clocks never change. So right now it's three hours. So my clinic. On, I actually do it on Thursdays. My clinic for six months of the year starts at 6 a.m. Arizona time. All right. Okay. So you're up bright and early. But I guess your day finishes somewhat early, too. So you get to, yeah, you get to do fun things in the Arizona sun in the afternoons. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So my guess is your clinical practice is fairly standard that you have, what, 20, 30 minutes per, per patient that you see. Talk about the, and, and I want to ask more about your other role, but as far as your patient care, like what does a day look like for you and how do patients come to see you and how do they get connected with you? So work camps within Department of Corrections, work camps are the lowest security places that a person can be placed. So there are fences. Like I said, these guys are able to go out in the community and work. So in this position, I'm not working with max custody guys. I'm working with folks who have, across time, in their sentence, earned their way into the work camp through good behavior. Okay. So most of the time, I am seeing people who somebody else in the system has already started on medication. On the MAT side of the house, I do um, a fair number of um inductions, new patient evaluations, and starting people on Suboxone. And every now and again, I'll get somebody who came into the system as a minimum custody, and they earned their work camp really quickly. And I may get somebody who didn't spend hardly any time at the reception unit. So my, I may end up seeing them for an initial evaluation. So within the correctional system, so anybody who comes into my camp who's on meds, sees me automatically. And then other folks um, can refer to me if it's somebody not on medications or patients can self-refer. They generally are seen by a licensed master's level provider first to screen whether or not they really do seem to meet criteria for a diagnostic criteria that would be amenable to medication consideration. Otherwise, if you didn't have a screening process, there's 150 people on the work campus, I'd probably end up with 130 of them on meds because they'd all believe they needed to come in and do So there's a screening process. If the mental health professional isn't quite sure whether or not the person meets criteria um, for a given diagnosis, I just have them send them on to me anyway, and I'll take a look at them. Okay. 
Okay. So you're treating just depression, anxiety, kind of bog standard sorts of things, plus doing MAT with folks. Yeah, it's a, the, the, the forward thinking part of this um, state also extends to the types of diagnoses they allow in work camps. Okay. A lot of states very limiting in the types of medications that can come to a work camp. So, for example, I've worked in systems where if you're on an antipsychotic medication, you'll, you'll never go to a work camp. camp. I've got folks diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. I've got MDD with psychosis. The patient came to me with psychosis at the work camp, so that was interesting. I've got a fair number of folks who meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. I have a few folks. I just had a guy come in for a very short stay. He came in for about 50 days at the work camp and kind of could never get seen at the intake unit and was is, has a diagnosis of bipolar and was heading out on a manic episode. So we had to rein back in. So I see a surprising variety of serious diagnoses at a work camp. Which makes sense. You're the expert, but I would think that prisons, corrections, facilities are full of just people who are mentally ill and their mental illness really led to them being incarcerated, whether that was mistakes made or drugs or just getting caught up in something my guess is that yeah that probably does fit what most people experience is that these aren't just bad people who have done bad things and need to be punished but these are frequently sick people who just get caught up in really awful things plus horribly traumatized and all the things you've already mentioned yeah yeah you know there you know there are certainly there are certainly folks who for whatever reason got them there are, are pretty dangerous and they're not terribly interested on in working on that and they remain pretty dangerous and they're not the folks that you want coming out into your community. But anywhere between 90 and 96% of people who are incarcerated will be released at some point in their lifetime. So these folks do come back into our communities. And one of my draws for corrections has always been what, what can I bring to the table to help you be safe when you walk out the door so nobody else gets hurt? Yeah. And so one of the things that, if you're interested in corrections, one of the things you need to understand is, um, uh, and it, the fancy term for it is the risk needs responsivity model, which is what are the person's areas of their life, vocational, educational, family, criminal associate, substance use, mental illness, what are those issues that they need assistance with and that contribute to a risk of making a choice to violate the societal rule? And if you're in corrections as a clinician, you need to really immerse yourself in the understanding the person sitting in front of you. What are the things that put them at risk to recidivate? because it's not all related to mental health. In fact, a, a large amount of risk of recidivism has nothing to do with mental health. Substance use is huge yeah. as a risk of recidivism. And so one of the things I say to the guys who I work with 
um, is today is the unfortunate day you realize that you're working with a psychologist as well, because we're going to talk about this other stuff going on in your life that doesn't have anything to do with meds. So I, I have a fellow who's very interesting, long trauma history, lived a pretty violent life, has done a lot of time in other um, state jurisdictions. And that's one of the ways we bonded because he came in looking at me like, who are you, little lady? And I, I kind of got him talking about where he'd done some time. It was in another state system that I was pretty familiar with. So I was able to say, hey, did you do time at X facility? Did you do time at Y facility? And when he realized I knew what his life probably had been about, then he opened up and we talked a lot about he's really angry and he's approached the world as a very angry, violent sort of guy. And that's what he expects back. And what he has to learn how to do now is not anticipate that everybody comes at him the way he historically went at others. Yeah. So I have him reading a great book on anger. It's by it's Aaron Beck's Prisoners of Hate, which is a phenomenal book if you have a, an angry client. And so I got it ordered for him. The mental health unit the leader at the facility ordered it for him, got it down to him. The first couple of sessions I had him back, he hadn't read it. So I just said, you know what, I'm just going to invite you to read that book. So last time I saw him, I saw him a few weeks ago, and he said, why you got me reading this stupid book? But then he started laughing, and we had like a 45-minute conversation about what, how he saw himself in that book and what he realized he was bringing to the table. Like, it was this mirror of... I'm getting back what I'm putting out. And so for me, one of the things, and when I went through Vanderbilt, folks, I was always the slowest person <laughs> seeing people and writing notes. And Dr. Vanderhoff, who was my preceptor, would say, you know, you might have to get a little faster on those notes. And I'm like, that's why I'm going back to corrections. I don't have to be super fast. But I have a kind of a luxury to spend. There's nobody who says to me, I've got 15 minutes with a patient. So if I have somebody who needs to be seen for an hour, I can do that. If I have somebody who is really simple and is looking to get out the door because he's got to go catch his ride to go to work in the community and he's doing well, we can spend 10 minutes. It's, it's a tremendous amount of flexibility because I don't build bill in correction. You can't run a wait list but there's a lot of freedom in what you can do in your sessions. Yeah, no, that, that is liberating when you're not held down by CPT codes and the people in the waiting room and, and that sort of stuff to, to be able to spend that amount of time with someone. And clearly that person needs a little more time. This isn't a 10 minute kind of person who's not going to respond really well to that type of treatment. Exactly. And, and a lot of what, providers when they come into corrections is kind of what I've already said here, which is corrections is more than prescribing meds. The people who sit in front of you have incredibly complex issues that have gotten them to the chair in front of your desk. And so the more you know about that world of what gets somebody involved in the justice system, the more you bring as a provider to say, you know, to say, hey, here's some other stuff we need to work on. So I had a fellow a few weeks, a few months ago, terrible substance use. 
And his discharge plan was to go to the homeless shelter. And I said, no, no, that's, that's not a good one. And so I just planted seeds about, let's think about a sober house. I know you don't want to, you're coming out of the facility. You don't want to go into another place with a lot of structure, but let's look at how many times you've left correctional facilities and not gone into any structure. And where do you come back? And he said, well, I come back to the correctional facility. And I said, all I want to invite you to think about is what if you did it different this time? Like the no structure hasn't worked like four times now. And the last time I saw him, he had applied to and been accepted to a sober living house. And that's where he went. Okay. And, and that took months of just gentle discussion and invitation to think about something. These guys do not want to be told what to do. Sure. They get enough of it. And so the more that you can partner but maintain boundaries, the more they will come back in and see you and spend time with you and tell you more. These people are used to people coming in and out of their lives and not caring. Yeah. And if, they, if there's a sense that you really do want to help them, you keep, don't, they'll let you do it for them. You can't do it for them. That's part of the criminal thinking pattern is, oh, if I can get somebody to do this for me, I'll go ahead and let that happen. But it's this invitation to say your life can be different. Yeah. It can be. Yeah. If, it, if you want it to. Yeah. So what kind of a person like survives in the correction system, like as a treating provider? Who's somebody that, I mean, clearly you're a lifer and have been in corrections as long as, long as you have. But how does somebody stay in that environment and survive in that environment and not just like completely burn to a crisp? Yeah, that is an excellent question. So what I tell people when I interview them for different positions, I, I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed over my 26-year career. I tell them, corrections, you need a mix of common sense, clinical skills, and good boundaries and ethics. And the situations that you encounter will differ as to which one of that triad needs to be in charge. Yeah. And if you're missing any of those, Corrections is going to be an uphill battle. But the, the thing about boundaries is you have to have them for what you absorb. And you have to know, you have to know your limits. So, because if, if you don't, you will hear awful things that people have done to other people. Mm -hmm you can't let those into your soul. You just can't. And you also have to realize you're not there to judge them. They have a judge. It's that person in the black robe in the courtroom who gave them their sentence. Yeah. And that, that's the last of the judging they need. What they need is care from you, healthcare, and that's what you're there for. To not burn out, you have to 
I'm going to go back. You have to understand what gets somebody involved in the justice system. There was, there's some really interesting research that came out of St. Elizabeth's, which is a hospital, the old hospital for the quote unquote criminally insane outside of DC. Such a great name, Um, right? It sounds like Arkham Asylum in Batman. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But um, a psychiatrist and a psychologist, Yokelson and Salmonow. Yokelson, if you ever read any, you want to read any old criminal personality profiling, read Yokelson and Salmonow. And they did a study of the cognitive and behavioral and emotional traits of the people who were placed at St. Elizabeth. And you learn the personality of somebody who ends up in a correctional system. And you, yeah. you, you also learn how not to fall into losing your boundaries. Sure. And that can be in a variety of different ways. I worked for, with a guy for years in the Kansas system who was notorious for getting people sideways, getting them in trouble, having relationships with them, getting people fired. And he got assigned to me. Fantastic. <laughs> and the first time I met with him, he says, wow, you got some nice shoes on there. And I said, you are not allowed to comment about anything that I'm wearing and never talk about my shoes again. And we were off for a ride. We worked together for years. And he always would try something. And finally he said, Damn. He's like, you have never fallen for anything I've ever tried. Why is that? And I said, well, I thought you needed a woman in your life you didn't have sex with. (laughs) And he said, I respect the hell out of that. And we kept working together. But if you don't understand where the energy comes from with some of these guys, they will wear you out. Yeah. Between, between the desire to get you to do things for them and what you need to understand about the behavior that got them there, which means you hear about what they did to get there, if you don't have a way to keep a boundary around that from invading you, it's hard to last. And that's ne- I've never had an issue with bringing stuff home. Yeah. No, I I think that's one of the ways that you survive just in general is being able to compartmentalize. When you start bringing patients home with you and you start absorbing their, I mean, we are trauma sponges all the time and we absorb everyone's trauma, but like you've got to squeeze yourself out at the end of the day and leave it at work. You can't bring it home with you because then it just absolutely destroys everything else about you. It, It destroys your relationships and your home life and all that stuff. I've always been fascinated in how you have survived in that as long as you have. And and I guess that's what you have to do because they are very savvy and very much people who are, have had to survive in all sorts of creative ways. And some of that is how do I take advantage of people in the best way that I can in order to get what I want? And you just have to be one step ahead of that all the time. Yeah, and every now and again, somebody throws around the word, they're manipulative, and I'm like, yeah. We work with people that when you learn about their environments that they've come from, they've had to engage in terribly maladaptive behaviors 
sometimes to survive their childhood, and other times, even if the childhood's been okay, things have gone awry later. Yeah. And to get needs met, they they don't communicate directly, and they don't ask for things directly because it hasn't worked for them in the past. That environment where I'm going to go out on a limb and say Matt and I are normal, but the environments we came from where we had a need and it got met, many of these folks didn't come from those sorts of environments where you can say, hi, I'm in need of something. And somebody in your world goes, oh, okay, let me help you with that. Yeah. Instead, they, they get punched in the mouth and have to figure something else out. Yeah. 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 Or, or you know, got around doing drugs with their parents. I didn't do that as a kid. When your model of an adult is somebody who sits around and shares their heroin with you when you're 13, that's going to mess some things up about how you how you understand needs get met. Yeah, and how you understand nurturing and how someone takes care of you. Let's talk about maybe more challenging folks, and that is administrators and uh <laughs> the more personality disordered the bureaucratic system that is corporate world and that sort of thing. So talk about your role in the other part of your job, how you do that and what that entails. Corporate America is not interested in a psychologist. <laughs> you generate little they revenue. They don't, they don't want to talk about their feelings and they don't want to talk about pondering life's mysteries and moral philosophy. There's no interest in that whatsoever in corporate America. <laughs> Um, one of the best things that happened to me early, early in my career, I, I worked with a warden who was a former career military guy. And he liked me a lot, which I appreciated. And, and but my long-winded, gray-toned answers of never taking a position, because he finally just started putting his watch down in front of me and starting a timer and saying, you have to answer this in one minute or less. <laughs> and, so, and so that was incredibly helpful to realize that coming from my background, coming from a healthcare background, coming from a position of somebody who solves problems and wants to brainstorm solutions and think about multiple options and how do we all come out when, that, that I needed to be able to understand the environment I was in at any given time and to figure out the people I'm interacting with, what did they need from me? So what I realized was I always had my therapist hat on. I just had to get better at understanding that even when I was not with a patient, I needed to understand what the people across from me needed yeah. and how do I get them. And that was a huge learning experience for me to be successful originally as a psychologist in the corporate world. Yeah. All relationships just give and take, like what, what, am, what am I giving to you and what are you giving to me? And learning that in order to navigate the system, you always have to, okay, how can I, how can I give this person what they need? What are they asking first and foremost is, is I think sometimes an important thing, but yeah, um, always wearing your empathy hat and understanding, okay, where's this person coming from and 
what do they want? Yeah. Well, and the other thing that that was not ever a terribly big interest of mine, but it had to become is I had to understand their position as it related to financials. Yeah. So I had to understand money flow and what did healthcare deployed in a correctional facility translate onto a finance sheet. And when I figured out how to talk their lingo about money, I also got much better at getting things I needed to get to do my health care. Yeah. How did you learn that? Was that just something that you, over time, you figured out? Or was that something that you're training? How did you figure that part out? Through painful growth. I ended up in positions where I was hired into, like some of my early leadership positions I was hired into them because I was a really good clinician and I was really good at directing people and they were willing to teach me financials. Ah. Like have this other piece, but you're really good at the stuff that, you know, if if the stool's got three legs, you're really good at two of them and you're smart enough, we can teach you the third. So I, I had directors and supervisors over the years who would sit down with me and we'd go over the financials, we'd go over the budget, we'd talk about how a ripple in one area of the budget impacted other areas, and how do you plan and forecast across time in the world of money, just like you plan and forecast a patient's treatment plan across time. Sure. If you're only thinking a week ahead for your patients, you're not doing a whole great job for them. Yeah. Just, and that's the same budget. Yeah. No, that definitely makes sense. Part of your job is hiring nurse practitioners to fill or interviewing and developing kind of their onboarding and that kind of stuff. So, so you're talking with a lot of nurse practitioners, interviewing a lot of nurse practitioners. What do you look for in a nurse practitioner that you want to bring into your environment, into your company to work with individuals in corrections facilities? Multiple things. One of the big things is I I want a really good answer about why do you want to work with justice involved people? And I don't expect you to say, wow, I've never wanted to work with anybody other than somebody who's committed a murder and they're incarcerated. That's not what I want to hear. What I want to hear is, I don't know a lot about them, but I I do know that I don't think they probably have a lot of people who really care about what's happened to them. I think they're probably an underserved population that appeals to me. I want to learn more about it. As opposed to, and I just had an interview yesterday when I asked that question and the person said, well, you know, I really just kind of wanted to work part-time and I saw this job. Because these folks can tell in about seven seconds if you really want to work with them. Yeah. And so you're just there because it's a 16-hour gig and you think you'll give it a whirl. That's not going to impress me. The other thing I want to see in an interview is I have to see a sense because you are going to be challenged. These guys and gals, it's not limited to the men. The women who are justice involved are going to challenge. You need to be able to hold your own with them. Not get up and get into fisticuffs, but be firm 
and have a confidence in the way that you're coming across because these folks will separate the weak gazelle out from the herd in no time whatsoever. <laughs> You've got a problem. Um, and then obviously, and, and you know, we do hire a fair number of new graduates, but I ask questions about, you think, you think somebody may be possibly dealing with a depressive issue or bipolar. I just, I just insert a diagnostic category. And I say, tell me how you'd structure your interview to find out if your inkling is accurate. And if you can't talk to me about specific symptom-based questions you'd ask, that makes me concerned. So I interviewed somebody a while back who said they were very comfortable with bipolar disorder. I said, great. So you are meeting somebody for the first time. You're getting the sense that maybe there is something bipolar-ish going on. What are you going to ask about? And the response was, well, I'm going to ask them about bipolar symptoms. Okay, but what are those? Like, if you get asked a question about how you'd structure an interview, get into it. How would you do it? What do you want to know? What are the flags you're looking for? What are the, what's the part, what are, what are the pieces of the history that you're going to really focus in on and, and try to figure out if your initial thoughts are accurate. Yeah. And if you're missing one of those in, in an interview with me, I'm going to worry about whether you're a good fit. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So which do you think is harder? Which, which gig you think is harder? Like the treatment patient side or the administrative side? The administrative side. Yeah. How so? You got to get along with a lot more people. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm I'm, sta I'm staring at you, thinking like, yeah, no, you're totally right, because there's all sorts of pathologies that that run loose and those types of things, and people who are territorial about programs and don't touch my program, don't mess with my program. No one understands how I do things. Tiptoeing in between all of those big personalities. Everybody has their priorities in a company. Mm-hmm. And everybody's priorities are their priorities. And so you have to do some strategizing about how do I make my priority your priority? How do I get you on board to be beating the drum in support of my priority too? And so there's, I always, I, I have always considered the administrative side of the house. I, I have to be a chess master. Sure. I got to figure out where I'm going to be in four more moves. And I got to figure out where I think you're going to go. So we end up in a place I want us to end up. And, and hopefully it's a place you wanted to end up as well. I'm sounding very Machiavellian. I'm not really. <laughs> How do I slaughter the competition? Yes. <laughs> I, but you, yeah, there is a little, there's some Kasparov elements of, of playing people and playing situations to to get to where you need to be because somebody may d dig their heels in and you're like okay how do I move these heels into where people need to go so what's a bad day in administration look like it's it's feeling that you failed to get a patient priority to the top of the list mm. that i didn't get people to see why this was important enough. And, and frankly, sometimes you get one shot. And if you don't make a compelling argument, 
that same group of people isn't they're going to be the ones who you have to come back to and if you lost them the first time you you that may have been your only shot to get them to listen to you in a large company yeah what's a great day uh, we didn't make any changes to your staffing plan, and we increased the salaries we're willing to offer. <laughs> <laughs> so you have employees, and everybody's getting paid fairly is a good day. Well, and, and fairly, I think, in the world of the justice-involved population, is more generous than what you would see in the community. Yeah, no, I think so. Do you think that's because... It is such a hard job and keeping people is difficult. And part of that is you have to pay people well, or is that just one of the perks? You know, my argument has always been, we have one of the most complex patient populations to treat. And so I want to hire the best I can hire. And I need more money to do that. I want to steal away the good people from the community because I want my patients to have the really good people. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It is it, it, very challenging work with challenging people. And so you're going to have to pay money to get decent people to do that. And and, I, yeah. Safety wise, the majority of correctional facilities are, are safe. It doesn't, it, it doesn't work to have an unsafe correctional facility. Nothing goes well on a day like that. I used to tell people when I hire, if I can get you to walk in the door and you see what it's like, I'll, I think I'll be able to hire you. Because you've got to get past that stigma of how scary people think it's going to, this is not Oz, this is not Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> um, so part of it is being attractive enough on a pay scale to even get people to come look. Yeah, okay, okay. Because Yeah, there is this idea that I'm going to go to work and get shanked. And what's really accurate is People who are living their time in a correctional facility, like we said, they're savvy. They understand the medical people and the mental health people are there to provide them services. Mm -hmm. So they don't want anything happening to those folks. They want people to continue to come to work and provide their care. So I can't tell you the number of times when I was working in a state DOC where uh, somebody would come in, whether it was for an appointment or not, but somebody who knew, who had an affinity for the mental health team, we always had somebody coming in and going, hey, you guys, don't go to the chow hall Wednesday at noon. <laughs> well, I never go to the chow hall, but I won't go Wednesday at noon. So you, there would be this network of folks that if something was going to kick off in the facility, they made sure to tell people that they wanted to keep safe. We're going to take you under our wing and watch over you and make sure nothing bad happened to you. I, I've, I, I've had inmates who have said, if anything comes goes down, I'm coming to find you. I'm getting you out of here. Well, that speaks very highly of your relationship and how they bonded with you, right? But it also goes to say... They know who comes in to, pro to, to do things that make their health better or their mental health better. And so by and large, people on the healthcare side of the house are generally pretty safe. Yeah. That doesn't mean always, but in the world of mental health and healthcare, you're not safe 
you're not 100% safe everywhere, anywhere. Yeah, agreed. You're one refusal of a Xanax prescription away from getting hurt sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite stories yeah. about you is you were over for dinner one night and one of our friends was was talking and, and she and I were lamenting about our chronic uh, reflux that we had and how we were both taking medicines. Maybe we're slightly anxious and high-strung people. And you were like, pointed to me, pointed the other other person. You were like, meds, meds, pointed to yourself. And you're like, no meds. How do you stay well, off of GERD medicine, Charlene? How do you manage the stress? How do you do self-care? I come from, I come by it genetically. I come from a family of people with a great sense of humor. And so I, I see humor in a lot of things. I bring humor into my work and I insist on that. So I had somebody a couple of weeks ago who had a really bad roommate and he had come in and said, I said, how are things going? He goes, well, things are better. I, I'm getting a new roommate and I got a job at the prison library and you know, Hey, I got like a couple of Stephen King books I hadn't read before. It's been pretty good. And then we go on and on and on. And uh, at the end of the session, he says, we, we're kind of wrapping up. And I said, well, good luck on your roommate. You get whoever your new roommate is. And he goes, well, it can't get any worse. And I said, well, you said you like Stephen King. He goes, yeah. I said, you ever read The Stand? He goes, yeah. I said, Randall Flatt. I goes, if Randall Flatt up at your door, come let me know. And we got, he just got a huge chuckle out of that. So you are humor and I I don't bring the pain home. I I have for whatever reason, and that may be genetic as well. I don't bring their pain home because I know I I could do no good for them if I did. But I I exercise. I swim. So one of the things I uh, Matt texted me to say, "Are we still on for tonight?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Glad we're not on video because I'm coming back from the pool." So I swim nearly every day. Um, I always have dogs. You can probably hear them snoring in the background. I garden. I read. I just insist that if I let myself go, I can't help anybody. Yeah. And I just refuse. I feel like I'm in some weird way an athlete. Like I need to be at the top of my game for the people who I deal with. I think that's and so fair. I, I just make it a priority. And I say no to things. If there's something I don't want to do in the world, I don't do it. No, I don't want to go there. No, I'm not going to take on that project. No, nope, not. I, you need to teach me how to do that. I, I, need, I need help with no. I'm so bad at no. But you're right. You can only, you can only be so much to so many people. And if you start just taking on everything, then you can't do anything well. I'm learning to be better about that. But it is hard for sure. And I think for a lot of people it is. We're not we're not infinite wells of coping and resource. I mean, there's we're finite and we have to take care of that. Yeah. So another thing that I asked you to do was come up with a playlist of sorts. And if it's just nothing but Eric Clapton, I'm gonna lose my mind. Yeah. I had to go off of Eric Clapton. I had to go at <laughs> His COVID record let me down, so I'm off of Eric Clapton. Oh, good. Thank so, you. As Matt knows, my ultimate dream in life 
is to be a certified sea turtle and manatee rescue provider. And living so, in the Caribbean while you're doing as such. Caribbean while I'm doing it, I've got my whole, thank you for calling sea turtle and manatee rescue. How can I help you? <laughs> uh, I got the whole show. So a big part of my playlist is Jimmy Buffett. Okay. Because if you can't find a little Zen in Margaritaville, you need some help. Uh, yes. And so, at the end of the day in your flip flops and, uh, and having an adult beverage on the beach, that's a good life. After you've saved the turtles. Looping back to the last answer, does anybody take better care of himself than Jimmy Buffett? <laughs> How old is he? Hello. He's got to be like 130. He's, he's pre-embalmed. He's past 70. He still flies himself all over the country. He does pre-pandemic, what, 100 shows a year in his bare feet? I mean, yeah. that is the guy who... Self-care is top of the list, but the rest, so the rest of my playlist. So I have realized that I stopped listening to a lot of music at about the mid-1990s. So not a lot has broken through since then, every now and again. So if I'm not on uh, Sirius XM Margaritaville, you will find me at uh, Classic Vinyl. I love Classic Vinyl. You know, a, a little, a little Leonard Skinner. For sure. No, it's great. Yes, classic vinyl. That that's my jam too. I I think I was born probably twenty years too late for my musical taste. But I'm very excited when Pink Floyd comes on classic vinyl and old school Beatles. Yes, I turned it on yesterday, and Magical Mystery Tour was on, and it got cranked. So yes. Yep. So yeah. Uh... Classic Final, Classic Rewind, 80s on 8, 70s, that's where you're going to find me. But every now and again, every now and again, you may find me with some, uh, like, Line Boys of Alabama. I just rocked out to John Baptiste's uh, Grammy winner over the weekend. He's an interesting guy. Like, he's done all kinds of cool stuff. And he's a brilliant musician. But, like, oh, yes, and I'm on Colbert. Like, how cool is that? So listening to that album, you know who it reminded me of? Hmm. It reminded me of Paul Simon Graceland. Okay. Just the variety in that album and Graceland, Graceland and Band on the Run, my top two albums of all time. Really? Band on the Run? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. The, the creativity in that album and the backstory behind what happened to the master tapes of the band on the run sessions you gotta look it up yeah yeah i don't know if i know that story and i have shame on me being a beatles fan i should probably look all of that stuff up but i I did find it very interesting the work that george john and paul did post beatles it was kind of liberating and i think paul was probably the most prolific he obviously had the most years after I think John was probably the most creative. I don't well, maybe yeah. not. I don't know. I don't know. He was he was the angriest for sure. And then I think that George was just this quiet genius that no one really paid that much attention to. But I will look up the band on the road because I that's an amazing album and that song is incredible. Like splicing these three very different songs together and it just works beautifully. So Band on the Run. We'll include that on your playlist as well. Yeah. Yeah, and then anything 
going by the traveling Wilburys. Well, the 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 original supergroup. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, anything that has has Tom Petty, Dylan, and George Harrison on it's pretty good. Roy Orbison. And Roy Orbison, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always forget Jeff's name from ELO. Jeff. Mm, yeah, I'm yeah. stuck. All redheaded guy. Jeff. Somebody's going to know it. They're going to be shouting it out. Someone, to someone, will. someone will. Charlene, this has been so fun. I've said this every time and people are going to be sick of me saying this, but this has been so fun to just catch up with my friends and be able to to talk and connect and because for many of us, we haven't seen each other in a really long time just because of COVID times and all that kind of stuff. But it's just been so great to talk to you. And thank you for sharing your wisdom. You're one of the smartest people I know. And my wife is just absolutely infatuated with you. And she's been listening to these as I've been recording them. And I told her that that you were doing one. She's like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited because I just love how I love how confident she is. And she tells the best stories. And so she'll be she'll be very excited to hear this as well. So thank you so much for doing I'm, it. Yeah. I'm thrilled. And this is this is a terrific idea. I love chatting with you. And it just is uh, it, it's good to spend time who, with people who kind of see the world the same way. That's another way to do a little self-care. Yes, absolutely. Connect with people who who you jive with. And you can have good, meaningful, deep conversations with. Because when you can uh, share how you're feeling and somebody gets that, that's good for the soul for sure. Makes it five o'clock somewhere. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Charlene. Thank you.